Welcome to the Robert J. Morgan Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping you believe and cherish the Bible and to learn and love Christian history and hymnody. I'm producer Joshua Rowe, introducing your host, Robert J. Morgan. Be sure to visit robertjmorgan.com where you'll find Rob's blog posts, podcast feed, bookstore, free resources, and more. If you've not already, be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review. Now here's your host, Robert J. Morgan. Who is the richest person in the world? Could it be you? We'll talk about that today as we look into Philippians chapter 4, verses 14 through 20. It's sort of an appendix to our recent series through the book of Philippians. But first, I've been going back through my book, 100 Bible Verses That Made America. The funny thing about writing a book is that by the time you've finished with it, you hardly want to see it. You're so exhausted with the process. But a year or two later, you pick it up and look at it with amazement and say, this isn't half bad. Remembering what the Lord gave you to write is a blessing, and the contents of this book have amazed me afresh. That is, the story of the role of the Bible in American history. So if you haven't read it, then please check it out. 100 Bible Verses That Made America. A name popped up in the news the other day that I didn't know. He is now reportedly the richest single person in the entire world. He's a Frenchman. His name is Bernard Arnault. And he's a fashion industry executive who oversees the likes of Louis Vuitton, Christian Dior, Givenchy, Tiffany's, Marc Jacobs, Sephora, and other such companies. I wondered where such a person lived, so I searched online and found some pictures of his expensive and expansive chateau in France. But there's also a penthouse in Paris, a vacation home in Saint-Tropez, another vacation home in the Alps, He owns an entire island in the Bahamas, five different mansions in Los Angeles, and a very expensive home in the Hamptons. I don't think that I ever found a complete listing of his residences, but he also has jets and yachts. I expect that he doesn't try to live in all of those places. They're part of his investment portfolio. But overall, he is said to be worth $211 billion. But... For all of that, in my opinion, he is not as rich as the humblest child of God, and I'm not just speaking metaphorically. Let's look at this passage today in Philippians 4, beginning with verse 14. I'll read it to you. Paul said, Yet it was good of you to share my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel when I set out from Macedonia— Not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. And my God will meet your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. 
and then there remains just the sign-off in verses 21 through 23. Greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. All God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Now, I want to walk through this passage phrase by phrase and then focus on the end of it. As we saw in our episodes from Philippians, which I called Whatever Happens, the church in Philippi was a New Testament premier model of church stewardship. In 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, the Apostle Paul gave an extended talk about this. And here at the end of Philippians, he is circling back to thanking them again for the financial support they had sent him while he was still under house arrest in Rome. So, as we say, Epaphroditus had been commissioned to travel the 800 or so miles and take their gift to Paul in Rome. And that was really an extraordinary thing for a church to do. Dr. Matthew Harmon and his commentary on Philippians says that the distance traveled, that is the distance that Epaphroditus traveled from the city of Philippi to the city of Rome, was somewhere between 700 and 1,200 miles, depending upon the route taken, and that was partially determined by the time of the year in which he traveled. The best estimates for the length of the trip, if he were going by foot, would be six weeks, but in less favorable circumstances, it might take up to three months. As we saw, Epaphroditus became deathly sick after he arrived in Rome, and Paul nursed him back to health. We have all of that given to us in Philippians 2. And then the apostle wrote this letter to the Philippians as a thank you, and he gave it to Epaphroditus and sent him home. So now here, near the end of the letter, Paul has said most of what he wanted to say, and he brings his letter to a conclusion by thanking them for the gift that they had sent him. He said in verse 14, it was good for you to share in my troubles. In other words, he said, you've partnered with me during this difficult time as a prisoner in Rome, and I appreciate it. It was very good of you. And then he went on to say in verse 15, moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out for Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Here Paul was thinking back over the years to the way in which the Philippians had regularly sent him financial support. I can't imagine what this means to a missionary. Throughout my life, I've been fortunate enough to receive a paycheck for services rendered, first at places like J.C. Penney and Sears, and then at the churches that I've pastored. But I've never had to raise my own support the way many missionaries do. After watching this process for many decades, I can tell you that it's harder for some missionaries than others, but I have grown in my conviction that a church should do as much as possible to sponsor and support the missionaries that it sends out. This is what the Philippians did for Paul. They became, in effect, his primary supporting church. So Paul officially expressed his deepest gratitude, but he went on to say in verse 17, it's not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more may be credited to your account. He may have been thinking of what Jesus said in Matthew 6, 19. 
Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. In other words, in some sense, our financial support for the Lord's work on earth is credited to our accounts in heaven. Think of that. And Paul went on to use several other phrases to describe their gift. In verse 18, he said, I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I've received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And now we come to the glorious closing note of the book in verses 19 and 20. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. I've mentioned before on this podcast that apart from the Bible, my primary source for this series on Philippians has been Dr. Gordon Fee, whose commentary on Philippians is top-rated. What Dr. Fee said about this verse is so good, I want to quote it to you. He said, The sentence that my God shall supply all of your needs according to his glory in Christ Jesus, that sentence, he said, is a master stroke. Although Paul cannot reciprocate in kind, since their gift had the effect of being a sweet-smelling sacrifice and pleasing to God, Paul assured them that God, whom he deliberately designated as my God, will assume all the responsibility for reciprocity. Thus, picking up the language of my need from verse 16 and filled to the full from verse 18, he promises them that my God will fill up every need of yours, especially their material needs, but also other kinds of needs. Dr. Fee went on to say, One cannot imagine a more fitting way for this letter to conclude in terms of Paul's final word for them. Personally, in the midst of their poverty, he said God will richly supply their material needs. He said that God in their present suffering would richly supply all that is needed, whether steadfastness or joy or encouragement, and in their need to advance the faith. In one mindset, God will richly supply the grace and humility necessary for everything they need. In the place of both grumbling and anxiety, God will be present to them as the God of peace. My God, Paul says, will act for me in your behalf by filling up all of your needs out of the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Well, this verse is simply a continuation of a theme that we find throughout the Bible. When we put the Lord first in our lives, in our habits and priorities, in our giving and living, He will make sure that all our needs are met, whether those needs are financial, emotional, spiritual, relational, or whatever. Psalm 23 says, Because the Lord is my shepherd, I have everything I need. Matthew 6.33 says, Seek first the kingdom of God and all these other things will be added to you. John 1.16 says, From the fullness of his grace we have all received one blessing after another. And here Philippians 4.19 says, And my God will supply all your needs according to his glory in Christ Jesus. 
I graduated from Columbia International University in South Carolina. And for a brief time recently, the president of that school was Dr. Mark Smith, whom we all loved and respected because of health issues he had to step aside. But Dr. Smith told of a time when he and his wife, Debbie, were newly married, trying to graduate from college and living on a shoestring. Tax season came, and they owed $278 in taxes. That may not seem like a lot to most of us now, but it was a whopping amount for that couple in that time. They were so distressed that for 30 days they committed to fast from certain meals and to pray fervently for $278. Dr. Smith later said, We claimed Philippians 4.19 is a promise that applied to our situation. Paul wrote this promise to a church that had been giving financially to his own ministry. And our finances were tight because we had followed God's guidance to attend Bible college. Meanwhile, he said, The youth group back at our home church decided to take up an offering and send it to us. It amounted to $153. And then Dr. Smith's grandmother sent them a check for $100. And when her husband heard about it, he added another $25. When Mark and Debbie received all of these gifts in the mail, it was $278 down to the penny, and it was a lesson that they never forgot. You see, the humblest child of God is richer than the richest man on earth, and that isn't speaking metaphorically. I want to give you 25 Bible verses, and I'll conclude with this, but I think it proves my point. First, Genesis 27:28 says, May God give you heaven's dew and earth's richness, an abundance of grain and new wine. Second, Ephesians 1, 7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. And then Ephesians 2, 7 says, In the coming ages he will show us the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Fifthly, in the parable of the rich man in Luke 12, 21, Jesus said, This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. He is telling us there that we have the capability of being rich toward God. And the Apostle Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 18, command them to do good and to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. James chapter 2, verse 5 says, Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? In Ruth chapter 2, verse 12, May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Psalm 119, verse 14 says, I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. And tenth, Psalm 145, verse 8 says, The Lord is gracious and compassionate, 
slow to anger, and rich in love. Proverbs 22 verse 1 says, A good name is more desirable than great riches. To be esteemed is better than silver and gold. And Proverbs 22 verse 4 says, Humility is the fear of the Lord. Its wages are riches and honor and life. Proverbs 28 20 says, A faithful person will be richly blessed. Ephesians 2 4 says, God is rich in mercy. And Isaiah 33 verse 6 says, He will be the sure foundation for your times, a rich storehouse of salvation and wisdom and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the key to this treasure. Romans 10 verse 12 says, There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all, and he richly blesses all who call on him. Look at Ephesians 1.18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. Ephesians 3.8 says, Although I am the least of all of the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles, what? The boundless riches of Christ. Ephesians 3.16 says, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being. And number 20 Colossians 1.27 says, To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Colossians 2.2 says, My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they will have the full riches. And Colossians 3.16 says, Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly. 2 Peter 1.11, you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Romans 11.33, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his paths are beyond tracing out. And number 25, our verse, Philippians 4.19, and my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. The hymn writer said, How rich I am since Jesus came my way, redeemed my soul and turned my night to day. How very rich, how very rich I am. All things have changed. My eyes once blind now see. The whole wide world is now my symphony. And with all this, Heaven is my destiny. How rich I am. Well, thank you for digging into the riches of the Bible with me. And remember to check out my book, 100 Bible Verses That Made America, wherever books are sold. This episode was produced by Joshua Rowe and the marketing company Clearly Media. Audio editing is by Jared Brummett. Editorial supervision is by Sherry Anderson. And Luke Tyler takes each of these episodes, condenses them, adds an opening outline, and posts them as blogs on my website at robertjmorgan.com, where you can find many other resources. Music is by Jordan Davis. Thanks for tuning in, and may God be with you until we meet again.